Hello, and welcome to the very first Unorthodoxy podcast of 2017. What follows is a talk I gave on the 9th of December 2016 at Café Riche, which is this café on, on Church Square in Pretoria, South Africa. You can check it out on, on Google Earth. I have been threatening for a while to talk about my book, and so this is precisely what I do here in this recording. My book, by the way, is called Seeing Things As They Are, G.K. Chesterton and the Drama of Meaning, and you can find it on, on Amazon, and I'll also... Uh, post a, a link in the show notes. It's a book on on G.K. Chesterton and how his astonishingly brilliantly unique way of thinking lends itself to a discipline known as philosophical hermeneutics. Its focus is on how to better understand how we read and interpret the world. The real question that drives the whole book is how we might overcome mental inertia to perceive things more clearly. Some of the ideas around this are, are things that I talk about in, in the, the talk that follows. By the way, as you will hear, I am introduced in Afrikaans by the host of the evening, but my international listeners will be pleased to know that my talk itself is still in English. While I understand Afrikaans just fine, I do the language a gross disservice when I actually speak it. I always joke that when I switch to my second language, I set off a chain reaction that could have hazardous effects on the rest of the world. Think the butterfly effect, but but even even more tragic. So just before um, I switch to the recording of that talk, I, I just want to say thank you to all of you who listen in, who have listened in throughout the last year that I've been doing this, even if you've joined me just recently. Um, I've been amazingly encouraged by the the way that the numbers of listeners has has grown at the moment on average it's it's more than a hundred of you that download this every day which kind of blows my mind and it is actually really encouraging to me that there are those of you out there who want to engage with the sorts of things that occupy my thoughts so yes i really appreciate you and your participation i've been getting increasingly more questions and more interactions and this is really encouraging uh, you are very welcome to to get in touch with me. You you can mail me at unorthodoxy at zoho.com. I'd really love to hear from you. And if you want to support the Unorthodoxy podcast financially, you can do so at Patreon. Every single donation will help to keep this running. I'm not interested in profit or in becoming rich. I just want to make sure that this thing... Uh, is done well. Um, but please, if you don't feel that you can help financially, that's okay. Don't worry. You can still listen in for free. And also, by the way, I, I really hope um, your 2017 is amazing. Uh, I know that every year is filled with its own challenges, but I hope yours goes superbly well. And now for the talk. I, I hope it gives you some joy. Cheers. En dan is er nou ander oulike idee, hier is die postkaarte van, van die filosofie café, 
department so I teach an information design yeah. uh, which yeah. is and then there's fine art yeah. which is part of that so I did say never but it I all design could do and I had cartoons could do I had um, television advertences it's a big jack of all trades must say he's like let me switch over now um, <laughs> he's going to talk about how can imagination awaken us to reality I must just give a brief, um, intersperse something here. I remember very well the first time he came to speak here. It was about two years ago. And his topic was, what if the map becomes a territory? Is that right? Yes, that's right, exactly. And what it was, was that the territory is the real world. That's the real three-dimensional, full, rich, whole bang shoot. And the map is our two-dimensional representation of the reality. And we, in our lives, the, the, the map is represented by the media and by any anything else, by television, by um, especially our toys. And so that he said the risk is that what, what can happen to us is that the that this simplified two-dimensional interpretation of the territory, this map, can become our territory. And that was the risk. And this vicarious living that we do where what we see on the television and what we read on Facebook is sometimes more real to us than, than the real world. Okay, so this is Dr. Rayburn here. No? He, um, he is doing research in mimetic theory, philosophy of an ideology, zombie movies. Yeah. And he's written a, a book called, here it is, Seeing Things As They Are, Chesterton and the Drama of Meaning. This book, he's got a few copies here that are for sale. 420 Rand, that is the cost price. It's 660 in the shops. So, so some few of his books are for sale. He doesn't have free copies, unfortunately, so you have to buy one. He, he's yeah. listened to this. He's working on another book called, <laughs> I love this, God, Gods, and Throwing Like a Girl. <laughs> a Political Theology of Sport. So... <laughs> I just love that title, and then he's also working on a massive, some sort of a, a work about all Ch Chesterton's writings, which he hopes will be completed before the next apocalypse. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> yes. I know. I read it on the map. <laughs> so, I give you Dr. Rayburn. Thank you very much. Well, I'm, I'm really amazed at, at your recollection of my last talk. Me too. You, you remember it better than I do, so I think that's quite amazing. So I, I want to start with a, a story. There will be a few of these uh, as I talk. Um, there, there was a monk who, who used to go into, he lived in a monastery as monks do, well, some of them, and he would go into, say, his evening pre prayers, but there was a cat that lived in the monastery, and the cat always came into the chapel and bothered him. 
So the monk said, well, I've got to make a plan. This is not, it's not very easy to be contemplative when you are being disturbed by a cat. So he would tie up the cat. don't know how he did this, but this is what he did. He tied up the cat to a tree that was outside the chapel. He would go into the chapel and he would say his prayers. And then when he was done, he would go untie the cat. And he did this for years. And, and then one day the, the, the monk himself died. And he had a number of, of followers, disciples, uh, younger monks, who, who thought this, this act of tying up the cat has, has tremendous liturgical significance. So what they did is they would tie up the cat, and then they would go, and they would say their prayers in the chapel, and they would go out and, and untie the cat. And then the cat died, so they got a new cat. And I think this is a, a really good illustration of how they, you start with this, this very practical thing, and then it, it becomes something else. It morphs until the original thought, the original thing that started it all off, disappears. And so, um, I, I know you've all heard the, the, the idiom, familiarity breeds contempt. Well, I think something different. I think maybe contempt is part of it, but I think that what happens is familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. The more familiar we get with things, the less familiar we are with them. And so in a, in a way, this is, this is reminiscent of another story, which I'm sure you all know, about two younger fish. They're swimming in the ocean, and, they, and they're just muddling along, as fish do. And an older, wiser fish comes up to them and says, isn't it lovely water today? And, and then he swims on. And, and one, the one fish, the young fish, says, turns to the other and says, what the hell is water? Um, and I think this is, this is something, a conundrum that we're all caught in. We're all seeing things, but not seeing them. In a way, we, we see, but we do not observe. Um, and, and you see this in the way that we interact with the world. We are, we are absolutely aware of anomalies. And we get so upset by them. So journalism is full, filled with them. It's, it's war, it's disaster, it's accidents, it's terrorism, it's political corruption, it's Zapiro comics, it's celebrity scandals, it's all of these anomalies that we pay enormous attention to. And Chesterton, who I spend a lot of time researching, says, well, one of the, the problems about this is that we learn that Lord Jones is dead before we even knew that he was alive. <laughs> and this is something, I mean, actually just this last week, I saw a, a headline that said, South Africa mourns gospel singer. And so then I found out, I've forgotten his name since, but found out that there's this gospel singer who just died, and I didn't know who he was. So it's exactly this. I, I learned that he's dead before I knew that he was alive. And this kind of reverses the order of things. We're paying attention to the anomaly, but we're failing to pay attention to the ground uh, that we're actually living in. So my point is, is that maybe we should try a different way of looking at things. Uh, there's a, a, I don't know if you know The Onion, it's a, an online, I think, I doubt they have anything print, but online satirical newspaper, and they have amazing headlines. One of them is, bananas still most popular fruit for pretending to make phone call, um, <laughs> which is such a, it's true, you're not going to use an apple for that, it doesn't, even though 
it's got a shared name. Or parents wish weak willed daughter would push back a little at violent lessons. Just, these are the sort of normal, everyday experiences that we have. And it's so strange that we, became, we become, in a way, alienated from our own experience. And I think the problem goes deeper. So I think of something that, that Plato and Aristotle both agreed on. They disagreed on some things. Uh, but they agree that philosophy begins with wonder. That's the starting point. And I think that when we fail to perceive the world we're actually living in, we're actually basically enacting a kind of loss of wonder. Um, so that, I think, is a deeper, a deeper problem. And forget it, it's like forgetting the water we're swimming in. And I think that forgetting the water we swim in is akin to forgetting the very core of our own existences. The fact that being itself is not inevitable, but kind of miraculous. I don't know if you spend a lot of time, you know, we get a lot of frustrations daily. I mean, 2016 is the year of frustration, I think, <laughs> in many ways, from all sides of the political spectrum. But we, we get frustrated before we acknowledge the sheer weirdness and bizarreness of the fact that we are here being anything and then even frustrated on top of that. Um, so I think uh, something that Chesterton says, which I love on this point, is that we think that, um, that this, in a way, following Leibniz, this idea that we're living in the best of all possible worlds. But Chesterton says no. We're living in the best of all impossible worlds. The world is impossible. It's not, it's not just possible. It's just completely strange. Some of you are eating. I love this, that I get to talk while you're eating. I'm glad that I don't have to eat while I'm talking. That would be embarrassing for all of us. But it would be, it's so weird that we do this, that we have to do this, that we're engaged in all of these very normal things, pouring water. What is that? So I think, I think we forget the ground. That's basically my, my thing. And, and when we forget that wonder is the root of philosophy, we have the only real resort, and this is a resort of much of modernity, is that philosophy begins with horror. That we're, we're appalled at the world. We're appalled that it's such a mess. And so we, we're, we, we find ourselves living in the aftermath of horror rather than wonder. And, and this is not a, this is maybe not as uh, unimportant a philosophical point as you might think. I think that the distinction between living according to wonder and living in the aftermath of horror uh, forms along basically two different kinds of ontologies, understandings of what is. Okay, so the first ontology, I think, is the ontology of violence. A great deal of modern philosophy follows this ontology which is that everything is just there, it's just there, but some things are more there than others, in a way. So, sort of like democracy, everyone is equal, but some are more equal than others. That's a philosophy of horror, where you, it's just there, let's just acknowledge that we're all just things, and then there are these other things that <coughs> erupt, they're events that shock us into uh, a pull or submission, or whatever it is. The other ontology is an ontology of peace, which is, I mean, it's strange to even feel like this is a, a, controvers a controversial thing to speak about, but 
I think it is. It's where goodness, truth, and beauty are there, already present, and they are there to just be discovered. Not just be discovered, but to be discovered. The, the, what this means is that the events that we experience, the anomalies, are, ju- are still shocking and disruptive. But they are never, nevertheless always exemplifying, although non-identically, the, repres- the repetitions of habit, albeit in a different form. So even the anomalies are still rooted in an already present ground of being. I hope that makes some sense. So I side with Chesterton and with a number of other philosophers who follow in, in a way the Neoplatonists or the or Platonist um, tradition, which is that we are already present in an ontology of peace and that the ontology of violence is in a way the map that has replaced the territory. And, and I think this, this is very nicely <coughs> illustrated by Chesterton in a little story he tells about a man who discovered England after it had been discovered. He, he sets sail and he, he's navigating the world and he's a terrible navigator. So he gets lost and finds himself discovering England, not knowing yet that it is England. And he plants the flag there and goes, this belongs to Great Britain, which is not so great anymore, apparently. Uh, and, and Chesterton writes of this something so beautiful. He says, what could be more delightful than to have in the same few minutes all the fascinating terrors of going abroad combined with all the humane security of coming home again. What could be better, he's he's a Brit, so he's writing this, I just love this. What could be better than to have all the fun of discovering South Africa without the disgusting necessity of landing there? And then he, I mean, he rambles a bit, as he does, and and then he arrives at this. This, at least, seems to me to be the main problem for philosophers, and I think the main problem for philosophy. How can we contrive to be at once astonished at the world and at home in it? Isn't that a beautiful question? How can we contrive, how can we endeavor or, or act or live in such a way that we are both astonished and astonished not in the negative sense only, but in the positive sense, the wonder of, of existence. But also not just not just so caught up in this astonishment that we're we're horrified by it. So we need to also feel that sense of being at home. So that's that's the question that I think Ch- Chesterton grapples with, and it's something that I grapple with a great deal in, in my uh, book. And I think one of the the tools that Chesterton uses to recover this first astonishment, let's call it first astonishment, is the tool of imagination. How can imagination itself help us to perceive more clearly? Um, I think already it does, but how can we think about how imagination does this? Um, I'm, another, que- the, another way of phrasing the question is the one that you're already familiar with. How can imagination awaken us to reality. So let's look at imagination, and I want to start with uh, a common one, which is the myth of creativity. I'm sure some of you are familiar with it, uh, because we've used it often. There are some people that are more creative than others. That's what I call the myth of creativity. There are creative people, and then they're just the ordinary folks. And the creative ones are very weird and need help, and probably... (laughs) 
Uh, and then there are the ordinary ones who drink more than the creative people. Uh, so in the wake of modernity, especially this, there's this stress on the, the Cartesian cogito. So Descartes set up this, um, you're all familiar with it, but the, this philosophical system that was rooted in doubt. And the end point of his, his explorations of doubt was that he arrived at the cogito. I can doubt everything, but the one thing I should not doubt is that I'm thinking. What he forgot to do was doubt his doubts. <laughs> and so he, because clearly he wasn't thinking, right? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so he, he arrived with this cogito, and in modernity the cogito takes precedent of any, over any other kind of ontology, meaning that the I, the ego, stands in some sense above reality, looking at it trying to control it. There are various philosophical systems that try to mirror this nominalism where language itself becomes something imposed on reality rather than a way to engage with it. Uh, that would be one example. And in a way, the myth of creativity, I think, arises out of this cogito. In other words, the creative is someone who has an, a kind of extraordinary power over Reality. They're the people who are coming up with weird ideas because they're not so attached to this idea of reality. Um, I actually have friends who, who genuinely say to me they're not that interested in reality. And I think they're speaking from too much reality to be able to actually make those statements. Anyway, so my stance on creativity, which follows Chesterton's, is that Imagination and interpretation itself doesn't just rely on something that Gadamer calls a fusion of horizons, but on a collision of horizons. The fusion of horizons, in a sense, is this dialectical posture towards being, which is that I get to mediate the other into the same. I get to encounter the world and reality, and then I get to figure out how it works until I'm in a place of comfortable control. I understand... By the way, this is, of course, the intellectual posture, right? Reality is terrifying, so let's just understand it, understand it until we tame it. This is not entirely wrong, but it's only part of the picture. The other part, I'm, I'm calling the collision of horizons, where we encounter the world and are, in some sense, confronted with part of reality pushing back there's always something, a kind of remainder, that, in, that escapes mediation. So I can try as hard as I like to mediate the world, to, con to confront it, to understand it, but I'm always, if I'm open enough, confronted with what escapes my attention. I can actually genuinely be surprised. Because that's the thing that dialectic wants to re resist. Dialectic is a bit like explaining the joke. So I'll talk a little bit about humor later, but dialectic goes like, let's understand things. And Hegel himself, actually, I think, fell victim to this, where there's a kind of control of reality, but it's like explaining the joke, the humor, the surprise, the, the wonder of the thing is eradicated. If you want to understand just, just what, how problematic dialectic can become, just try that. Try and explain a joke to someone or try and have them explain it to you, it's even worse. Um, so I don't think that there is such a thing as a creative person and an uncreative person. I think there are people who are more open to the creative, more open to what imagination can do. But that's, that's a posture, not an ability. Does that make sense? 
It's a way of being in front of the world rather than just something I'm trying to do, for instance. So I think there is actually a middle ground between the modern active subject where the cogito takes charge and between the postmodern, so that's the modern one, and the postmodern, which uh, renders the subject completely passive. Uh, there's something of this in, in uh, quite a lot of postmodern philosophy. Derrida is quite helpless. If you read Derrida, you encounter a guy who's going, ha ah! <laughs> but very, in very sophisticated terms. Uh, I like Derrida very much, but I think that this is where he, he, got, he uh, replaces the dialectical with the equivocal. Meaning that he's, he's in perpetual, a perpetual state of not being able to grasp anything. It's kind of radical indecision. I'm striving for something that William Desmond calls the metaxological, which is just fun to say because you get reactions like the one you've just given me, which is, what, what are you doing to us on a Friday night? Um, the metaxological allows for the dialectical and it allows for the equivocal, both, not one or the other. Okay, so um, there's, there's a space in mediation, and what imagination really is, is mediation. There's a space in mediation for both repetition, the same, and for the anomaly, what is different. They're both there. And I think most of us, if we interrogate our experience of reality, will find that, that they're both there. There are things that we find mysterious, like toast. Or goldfish. Why do people have them? I don't know. Uh, but, but there are things that make sense, like having a dog, for instance. Um, so, imagination in the way that I'm trying to present it is really a particular kind of participation. It's a way of participating with the world. And it is a combination of decision, which is the repetition of the same, and reception. Being decisive and in the position of having some kind of a will, not being helpless in, in sort of uh, a postmodern posture of, of uh, bewilderment, it's, it's got decision, but it's also got receptivity. So I'm going to quote myself just to spice up the talk. Uh, this is from my book. Uh, Chesterton is acutely aware of the potential of any method or technique to produce a stale encounter with the world. Meaning, as pretty much what I've said, we can cr create a method that we can use to encounter awe and wonder again. But isn't that just dialectic again? Uh, so this is why Chesterton argues that imagination's central function is to disrupt or revolutionize our whole orderly system of life. The prime function of imagination is not to make strange things settled so much as to make settled things strange. Not so much to make wonders facts as to make facts wonders. This is a reversal, I will explain. A reversal of our normal way of seeing imagination. So imagination, as we tend to understand it, is watching Alice in Wonderland and going, it's all weird, but this is normal in this world. That's to make the wonderful normal. That's what most people would think of as imagination. Chesterton's thing is something different. He reverses it. He says... It's to make facts wonders. To see that Alice in Wonderland is fairly normal. What isn't normal is the fact that you're sitting here listening to it. That's bizarre. I'm sure by the end of this evening you will agree that 
you maybe should have had some other idea about it. So Chesterton's main contention is that the imagination is primarily what allows us to see what is there, not what isn't there. That's part of it, of course it is. But the primary role of the imagination is to allow us to see what is there. Imagination, then, is not only about invention, inventing things or making things up, but it is about recognition, awareness, perception. So the basic definition of imagination that I'm working with here is that it's the ability to see something as something else. That's the first way of seeing it. After that, it becomes, we see it as something else in order to see that it is. Does that make sense to you? We see it first as something weird and strange and mediated so that we can see what it is, in fact, in reality. So another way of saying this is imagination allows us to see one thing in terms of another. And you can see this in very ordinary things as well, um, which I'll get to. Um, imagination presumes that reality is always mediated. We never have a pure, unmediated encounter with reality. This was Descartes' era. He believed that you could have an unmediated encounter with reality, but his cogito, his arrival at that, came from a mandate from a bishop who said we need a different system of philosophy to eradicate doubt. Uh, produced interesting results. And then Descartes thought, and even his statement, I think, therefore I am, arises in the midst of a context. He is not thinking in a vacuum. No one can think in a vacuum. Uh, so what this means is there's no such thing as a hermeneutics, an interpretive framework of immediacy. There's always a framework, a frame even. I think art is helpful. All art is defined by the frame, the room that it's in or the context that it's trying to speak to. Um, so nothing, I would say, nothing is obvious, especially the obvious. But we forget this. We forget this and we assume that the obvious is in fact obvious. So one way of, so I'm talking about imagination as this thing that allows us to mediate. We see something as something else in order to see what it is. And a good example of this is metaphor. We use metaphors all, all the time. So I will quote Shakespeare. A bit of Shakespeare that's easy to remember. Romeo is waxing eloquent, uh, and he's clearly besotted with someone. And he says, Juliet is the sun. Now, the scientific framework would say, Romeo has lost his mind. Juliet is not the sun. The sun is the sun, and Juliet is Juliet. Let's just... But we know... So, literally, Romeo is lying. But he's speaking more truth through the lie than could possibly be spoken through a literal truth. It would be very boring, I'm sure you agree, if he said, Juliet has brown hair and blue eyes. Good, it's lovely, but the truth of what Romeo is saying is more accessible to us because it's through an image. Of course, that's where we get the word imagination. So there's something about... Juliet's, in a way, mystical quality that we are now <coughs> enlightened to because of this metaphor. So imagination allows us to see one thing through other things. And through this, we are allowed to recover the ordinary. Uh, in a way, we recover it through the mediation. And a good a story that Chesterton tells that, that in, 
illustrates this is one called The Colored Lambs. And it's a story, there's this little boy who is bored. And a stranger emerges randomly and says to him, I understand completely your predicament. Here are some rose-colored glasses. And the boy puts on the rose-colored glasses and the world is transformed into this red world. And it's rose-colored glasses. So let's... So he plays with it as this thing. So suddenly the boy sees everything in red and it's wonderful, but it starts to become a little monochromatic. So the stranger says to him, no worries, I've brought a number of other colored lenses. Here, try some green ones on. And so he sees green grosses everywhere and, uh, and a number of other green things. And, and it's lovely and amazing, but it sort of settles again because this is the pattern. There's this astonishment first, and then it settles down. And eventually, so then the boy tries on yellow uh, spectacles and blue spectacles. And eventually, when he takes off the spectacles, he encounters his own world. And he sees that it is multicolored. And it's an amazing thing. At one point in the story, Chesterton talks about the stranger's own experience of this. That at one point, he started to with this monochromatic view of things. He started to paint his own ideal world. And then he took the mediation away and eventually discovered that he had painted his own world. So there's a journey. You can see it. There's a kind of acceptance of everything that is. There is a mediation, the imagined world, that returns us to first astonishment. And I think that's quite quite an amazing thing. In In a way... What Chesterton is getting at is that there are no boring things. There are only bored people. And so, so he puts the onus on us in a way that we need to make sure that we are open. That we are available to what is wonderful. For not the wonderful, the anomaly, but the wonderful of what is there. And I think that's, that's a really powerful thing. Um, and I, I think, by the way, philosophy does this very all the time. When, whenever I read a philosopher, what am I trying to do? Most, uh, this is very personal, but I'm sure a lot of you can relate to this. I'm trying to encounter a new way of looking at something that I'm already familiar with. The most astonishing things are the things we already know. This is why when the news comes out and says Zuma is corrupt, we're shocked and horrified. Because we already knew this. And this is an amazing thing. This is what imagination can allow us to do. We can see what is there and be amazed by it. And that does apply to the negative stuff as well. But it's from a positive base, I think. So one of the tools that Chesterton uses to, in imagination is something called defamiliarization. Which is exactly what it sounds like. It takes the familiar and it undoes the familiarity of it. It's basically an antidote to the formulaic. It's just taking what is formulaic, what we've made into a formula, and undoing the formula in it. So the point that Chesterton is trying to make, and and he does this throughout his work, it's something that I, I think is probably the most, his contribution to philosophy in a way, is that he's constantly restoring difference. So that we can encounter the world anew. But he does it in a remarkable way where Derrida restores difference. Full stop. Chesterton tries to restore difference without eradicating similarity. 
In, in essence, we can only know what is different on the basis of what is the same. We know that that chair is different from that chair and different from that chair because they are all chairs. Um, so what this does, it's, it's, it's a confrontation that the Kajito cannot take charge over what is perceived. The Kajito is there, of course, we have, we have egos, we have the eye that perceives everything, but it is not in charge, completely at least. In defamiliarization, I'm confronted with the fact that I am I, and things are things, and everything is itself, and eggs are eggs. Strangest invention on the planet. Like, what the, and it's, it's just, you break it? What is that? Anyway, I hope that this will allow you to see things in a slightly... The thing that makes it astonishing, the, the thing that makes breaking eggs astonishing is that you're doing it, and it is a solid image. But we start to absentmindedly just do things because they're there. And so this, this imaginative universe that Chesterton is encouraging is a world where we are awake to the present moment of where we are. So um, one, so I've got two images that, that are from Chesterton's philosophy that help us uh, to recover the, the, the ordinary. The one is the image of the pessimist. Chesterton, I love this one. Chesterton says, I'm sure you've heard people say, life is not worth living. Chesterton says, this is easy to solve. All you do is you put a gun to their head. Ah. <laughs> oh. This is a terrible thing to encourage violence. That's not what Chesterton is doing. But what he does in the moment, the moment you think of that, say you are that person and you go, I wonder if life is worth living. If you have a gun to your head, your answer is more than likely going to be, yes, please. I would like to live. Uh, don't shoot me now. So there is something that we believe, but the belief is false and we don't realize it. And so... Chesterton says, through an image that is a confrontation with our current state of mind, we are given an opportunity to reimagine what we've already been thinking and to actually ask whether we believe it. By the way, we all live in contradictions and we, we all live with hypocrisy. We all believe that the world should, be, you know, we should look after the poor. How many people actually do it? Probably very few. So we, we believe it, but we don't believe our believies. Uh, why would we bother to do that? So that would be the one image. The other one is the more fun of the two, which is humor. Of course, Chesterton uses the, the image of putting a gun to the pessimist's head in a humorous way. But humor is an amazing thing. The things that are funniest are the true things. We often laugh, I mean, when you listen to Trevor Noah, for example, the reason he's so funny is because he's so perceptive about what is actually going on. He's not lying. He's telling truth. There's even, if you look, by the way, one of the things I'm doing is I'm looking at improv as a conceptual framework, which everyone should do once in a while. But improv is quite amazing because the, th the thing that you're supposed to do is to accept everything and just run with it and see what happens. And it's the true things in those experiments that are funniest than just trying to be funny. By the way, that's why I think most American sitcoms fail so miserably in being funny. Because they're trying to be funny. Whereas the Brits are just pessimistic and they're just noticing things and suddenly I, I actually want to laugh. Okay, so humor. Some examples, of course, if you want to go for humor, you could go to Schopenhauer. 
but that would probably, he, he writes, um, actually if he wrote fortune cookies, they would be called misfortune cookies, I think. <laughs> that, that would be German misfortune cookies. By the way, that's sad because that's a joke in my book. Um, so Groucho Marx, uh, he, he says, I never forget a face, but in your case, I'll make an exception. And, so there's this, the obvious, but he subverts it and you still feel like there's some wonder in it and you're forced to rethink things. Or, I had a perfectly wonderful evening, but this wasn't it. <laughs> um, and one of my favorites is this. The secret of life is honesty and fair dealing. If you can fake that, you've got it made. <laughs> and the last one, which I think gets to the truth of of what Chesterton is doing in his philosophy is this one. Uh, Groucho Marx again saying, I know that he looks like an idiot and he acts like an idiot, but don't let that fool you. He really is an idiot. <laughs> the really shocking thing, as I said, is the thing that is already there. So what I'm basically saying is, I know it looks like reality and it acts like reality, but don't let that fool you. It really is reality. So Chesterton suggests that a particularly wild and soaring sort of imagination is that which allows one to see what is really there. That's the first thing. So I thought to close uh, with a fairly lengthy passage from my book which also deals with this, this idea of, of recovering wonder. Chesterton notices that some people tend to talk of actual things that happened, dawn and death and so on, as if they were rational and inevitable. They talk as if the fact that trees bear fruit were just as necessary as the fact that two and one trees make three. But it is not. Thus Chesterton introduces the test of fairyland. Isn't that a beautiful thing? You can remember that. The test of fairyland. Which allows us to imagine within reason things being other than what they are, no matter how unlikely. Trees not growing fruit, but instead growing candlesticks or tigers hanging by the tail. I'd like a tree that grows tigers, that would be great. Through imagination, we discover with a shock that it is not necessity that, ma that makes leaves grow on trees, but magic. Just because one incomprehensible thing constantly follows another incomprehensible thing, it does not mean that the two together somehow make up a comprehensible thing. So, that, I'm going to stop there, just pause on that thought. We look at causality, for instance. This is very, like, there's Chesterton playing in Hume's territory, but we look at causality. We look at something, tree growing, fruit. And we feel like this is perfectly normal. But the tree is incomprehensible to us, and the fruit is incomprehensible on its own. So why do we add them and go, oh, this is perfectly sensible? Um, he asks us to challenge this way of thinking. By the way, he's not anti-science in any way. It's just he's cha challenging our perceptions. That's the thing. Um, imagination allows us to see that, that many of the terms used in science books, law, necessity, order, tendency, and so on, are really unintellectual because they assume an inner synthesis, synthesis which we do not possess. The words we find in fairy tales, charm, spell, enchantment, make much more sense because they express the arbitrariness of the fact and its mystery. A tree grows fruit because it is a magic tree. Water runs downhill because it is bewitched. The sun shines because it is bewitched. We imagine that things can be otherwise until confronted with the monstrous surprise that things really are. 
We entertain mental impossibilities to discover bodily miracles. For Chesterton, imagination becomes a way to return us to the original astonishment of the child who finds that mere life is interesting enough. It helps us to return to the higher agnosticism called ignorance. And so that's the thought I want to leave you with before we engage and discuss, that perhaps the best kind of philosophy is one that doesn't impart knowledge, but ignorance. Well, there you go. Wow.